0: to start this morning by asking if you've ever been indebted to someone. I don't mean I don't mean in debt as far as like you owe somebody money, but but indebted in the sense that um, that someone did something significant for you and and you know you felt like you owe them one, right? That that uh, that phrase. Yeah. And at times it it could be it could be something small, something um, in the grand scheme of things, pretty insignificant. Maybe, maybe your sibling did the dishes for you when it was your turn and now you, you, you owe them that same chore or, or, or something equivalent to that. Or maybe someone watched your kids for the afternoon and you want to make it up to them by, by doing the same, you know, being, being indebted in that way. And you know, I was thinking about uh, 10 or so uh, years ago, um, uh, brother-in-law Jacob had some credit to the uh, the used sporting goods store in Washington the, the store was about ready to close permanently and he had some credit that you know it's a use it or lose it kind of a thing so so we uh, went over there we picked out a couple golf clubs picked out two drivers um, took them both to the driving range try each tried both of them out and and then we each kept one of them, and so uh, not only did he buy me a, a nice tailor made driver, but it's a golf club I can actually hit pretty well Mo- you know most days when i 'm golfing so uh, i'm indebted to him i mean in, i'm indebted to him for that that act of generosity so you know sometimes it's things that, that, that you know it, it's not a huge deal, other times situation might be really significant you know he might have been up against a deadline at work and, and had another person not helped you out, uh, you you might have been reprimanded or, or demoted or maybe even fired you know, without their help in that case. Uh, maybe you had a physical injury during which someone took great care of you or maybe they sat with you at the hospital for a, a few consecutive days or, or maybe you even, even had a loved one who who nearly lost their life if it were not for the quick action of of another person i mean really being indebted to someone in, in those circumstances right but i also want to ask that question from the other perspective have have you ever done something for someone else which proved to be of great benefit to them right did you ever Do something which the receiving person felt like they owed you one, you know, and that they owed you big time. And if you've been in that situation, and and if you had a good relationship with that person that that, uh, you helped, what was your expectation regarding reciprocation? Did you expect them to try and make things even after you did what you did? Or did you tell them, you know, don't worry about it. It's what... It's what family's for, it's what, what friends are for. It, when one person has greatly served another or greatly sacrificed for another, it can create what feels like an imbalance in, in a relationship and can really leave us feeling uncomfortable and uncertain, right? Whether you're on either side of that, it can kind of create that, that imbalance. And, and sometimes, due to the nature of the situation, it can be difficult to know how to move forward in that relationship. Perhaps the person who who feels indebted makes things awkward by constantly trying to repay (laughs) the kind act that was shown to them. Or or perhaps the person to whom we are indebted expects us to make things even when when we know we never could. There can be all kinds of awkwardness and uncertainty there that comes from this feeling of imbalance. Well, we're gonna look today at at one such situation, and it's one that existed between God and his chosen people. So God entered into a covenant with his chosen people, and he did things for them, which when we look at it, we would say, (laughs) that creates a bit of an imbalance, right? And he did have expectations regarding how his people would respond, But the true nature of God's expectations and and his desires, what we're going to see, it was something different than what the people assumed that it would be. Okay, so, so we're still in the book of Micah, and I would encourage you to turn there with me. We're going to be looking this morning at the first part of the third message. We'll be looking at the first eight verses of chapter six in Micah. It's on page 779 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow there. And as we read through the passage today, we ought to notice that, that the scene which unfolds is, is one that has, has many similarities to that of a courtroom. Uh, in fact, you can look at the sermon notes and you can see that the text can be divided up according to certain aspects of a courtroom trial. So the first verse in chapter 6, the first verse of this message from Micah, God is he's calling his people to come to him and to explain themselves. It's kind of like the summons. So look with me at verse 1, Micah 6, verse 1. It says, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. So this, as I said, this is the third message from Micah. It begins like the other two, this call to hear. And while the message that we studied last week was primarily directed at the leaders of God's people, this message and this call to, to come plead your case is given to all God's people. So it doesn't matter what status a person doesn't or doesn't have, this call is going out to everyone. And then after the people are summoned, those who will decide the case after hearing the evidence are called forth. So kind of like the seating of the jury. Look at verse 2. It says, Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now if that seems like a strange jury, if it seems like the mountains and the earth, why are they called to hear both sides? It's not anything unique to Micah's message here. So some other places in the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses was preparing to give this grand song of worship to God. It was a song which recalled in detail the works of God shown toward his people. Moses called on the heavens and the earth to hear his words. In Joshua 24, as Joshua charged the people to choose this day whom you will serve, he set up a large stone under a tree as a witness. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is preparing to speak to God's people about their wickedness, and he calls heavens and earth to give ear to his words. So, so it's not unique to Micah. The, the reason to call heaven and earth to be witnesses is, is because there's the understanding that that exists longer than humans, longer than human generations, right? When one generation passes away, the heavens and the earth are still present to bear witness. So, so all that being said, Micah, he's being poetic here, like in other places in scripture as he sets up this courtroom scene. He's, he's speaking in a metaphorical way that, that aligns with others who have come before him. So the summons has gone out to God's people, the, the party's been gathered, the jury's been seated, and then the proceedings can move forward at that point. And God goes first. God brings his charge against his people. And, and as I read the next three verses, take note how the charge probably isn't quite what we might have expected it to be. Okay, so look with me, verse three. Again, God speaking says, "'O my people, what have I done to you? "'How have I wearied you? "'Answer me, for I brought you up "'from the land of Egypt "'and redeemed you from the house of slavery. "'And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. What happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? So I would have expected God to begin speaking and bring the list of ways, all the ways in which God's people have failed in upholding their end of the covenant, after all, the first five chapters of Micah contain statements about idolatry and oppression and failed leadership and pride and selfishness. And so it's not like God couldn't have come up with a list. He could have come up with all these things that, that the people had done, how they had failed. But that's not what he does here. Instead of shining the light on the deeds of the people, he, he shines the light upon himself himself. And his own deeds and he begins by asking what he's done to res- to deserve the response that he's gotten what has God done to them how has God wearied them that's what he asks and in asking those questions God's confident that he hasn't failed them that he hasn't wearied them in fact he's been quite loving and gracious to them, and it's evidenced by the four situations that he reminds them of in verses four and five. So the first thing that God calls their attention to is what happened at the Exodus. People ought not forget that they were slaves in Egypt. Their masters were cruel to them. They had they had no hope of anyone from their own ranks coming to their rescue. But then God looked favorably upon them and brought them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty and a powerful hand, right? He he showed his might through the 10 plagues. He showed his provision by causing the Egyptians to send the people on their way with bountiful supplies. He showed his protection by leading the people through the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptian army which pursued them. So, so what has God done for them? Only set them free from 400 years of slavery and then destroy their captors so they didn't have to worry about being re-enslaved by the Egyptians for a very long time. That, that's, that's quite the opening argument that God brings. Like, remember that, O oh my people. And then second, the second thing he, he brings to mind, he reminded them that after freeing them, he gave them leaders to guide them. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, they all led the people as they sought to not only function as this newly uh, formed free group of people, but, but do so in, in relationship with their mighty holy God. Moses, Aaron, Miriam led them in that. Moses even pleaded with God to not wipe out the entire nation and start over again when, the, when they fell into idolatry in the scene with the golden calf. In a way, the leaders which God provided them in those early days stood in stark contrast to the leaders that we talked about last week that that Micah addressed in his second message. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, they sought the good of the people. The leaders of God's people in Micah's time sought the good of themselves. And so God reminded them that after he freed them, he provided them with good leaders then third, God drew their attention to the time when Balak, king of Moab, sought to have curses called down upon the people. So this is moving into the second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. This, uh, that, this story can be found in, in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24. The this, this second generation of Israelites, they, they had traveled to the place just east of the Jordan River, so just outside of the promised land the land of Moab, and they were preparing to finally go into the promised land and take possession of it. But while they were camped there on the east side of the Jordan River, the king of Moab became concerned that, that this group of people would conquer his territory, right? He, I guess he didn't know that they were moving on, that they were going across the river. So he sought to buy the services of a guy named Balaam who was a well-known prophet at that time. Now we're not really told if Balaam's prophecies of blessing or curse prior to all of that really were from God or were from, were from some other source. Seems like it was, he's probably a false prophet, but regardless, the king saw him as someone he could hire to curse God's people. That was his intention. There's this group here. He's worried about them. I'm going to hire somebody to curse them so that it doesn't go well with them. So as Balaam traveled to meet with the king of Moab, the angel of the Lord spoke with Balaam and told Balaam, you are only to say the words that I give to you. And what ended up happening then is that rather than curse God's people like the king of Moab wanted, four different times Balaam spoke words of blessing over the Israelites and those words were physically coming from Balaam's mouth, but, but God himself was the source of those words. And so God is calling the people to remember that, remember the blessing that was spoken over them that he gave to Balaam. And then finally in the courtroom scene, the, the fourth thing that God uh, urges them to recall is what happened between Shittim and Gilgal. And so as the people camped on the east side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, the specific place where they, where they dwelled, where they camped, was called Shittim, which sounds like a swear word, but in Hebrew, it means acacia trees. It's the name of the place where they were camping. So at that point, the only thing that stood between them and the promised land was the Jordan River, which normally isn't such a big deal. The Jordan River is, is not this big, huge, it's not like the Illinois River at, uh, here or, or the Mississippi River. The Jordan River is typically three feet to maybe 10 feet deep. Some of the widest parts, it's about 100 feet wide. But when they were there, camped, camped there, prepared to go in, the river was at flood stage that time of year. So that's when this normally smaller river is quite large. And it wouldn't have just been an inconvenience, it it, it most likely would have been dangerous to cross at that time. And so just as God brought the first generation of Israelites through the Red Sea by parting the water, he did so for the second generation, this time at the Jordan River when it was at flood stage. The water stopped flowing and the entire nation was able to cross on dry ground. And once everyone had crossed, then the waters flowed again. And where do you think the people found themselves once they were on the west side of the Jordan River? They were at Gilgal. So when, when uh, God says here in his testimony, remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that's what happened. God miraculously stopped the river so that his people could safely cross on dry ground and enter the, the long-promised promised land so God reminds them of these four specific events and then he concludes his charge at the end of verse five by stating that that his acts are righteous God had clearly provided for his people in major ways time and time again and if there was ever an I owe you one this could be it right I mean, what God had done for his people, they, they were majorly indebted to God because of his beneficial actions toward them. And God's charge, at, he, he ends his charge at the end of verse 5, and then the people give their defense in verses 6 and 7. So look at, look at their response to what God has brought to light. one of the things that isn't always clear with, with written words is tone. You know, it's not too difficult to determine tone when we're, when we're having a conversation in person with someone, when we can hear voice inflections and see facial expressions and things like that. It's much more difficult when reading words. This is why we've all incorrectly interpreted at least one letter or one text message in our life it's why emojis were developed to try to give some added depth to emails and text messages i mean there's it's it's tough to determine tone from written words well in these two verses different bible scholars interpret the tone differently some some read this defense from the people and 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 they hear a statement of pride that's the tone that that some bible scholars would hear other Bible scholars would say, no, it's it's a it's a statement of exhaustion. People are just throwing their hands up and just like God, I mean we can't do anything, right? You know, like there's, there's just nothing we can do. Others would say, and I, I would lean more this way, that that it's an attempt to capture the inadequacy that the people felt. I, I think the I think the question that they ask in verse six is is a genuine one. We, with what shall I come before the Lord? I mean, God, what do, you, what do you want us to do? I think that's a genuine question that's being asked. They could not deny all the things which God had just highlighted regarding his goodness to them. He, he had blessed them in ways which were incredible, extremely loving, but in light of those actions, the people responded by wanting to know, in essence, what can we even do to, to even the score? God, you've done all this for us. What, what can we do to make it up to you? And they saw themselves as, as indebted to God in a major way. And they believed that to repay them, they needed to do something, and not just anything, but something big. And so they presented some ideas of what they might do. And each one gets more extravagant than the next. You know, how, how can I repay you, God? A, a, a year-old calf is a burnt offering. Can I give you that? What about, what about, ten, what about thousands of ram offerings, God? Can, can, can I give that to you? What about 10,000s of rivers of oil poured out for you, God? Can, can, we, can we repay you in that way? What about my firstborn, sacrificed as a sin offering? Now, now God expressly prohibited the sacrificing of children, but it's mentioned here as, as an extreme way of, of, of trying to repay God for His goodness to them. God, should we go that far even, to try and try and settle the score, offering our firstborn? I, the people feel an imbalance in the relationship between them and God. And and they wanna know what what God requires from them in order to rebalance the scales, in order to make it up to him for what he's done for them. Do we ever feel that in our relationship with God? You and I ever, ever look at what God has done for us, look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, Say, man, in him, we no longer face God's just judgment upon sin, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. We don't, we don't have to face that because of Jesus. We're brought from death to life. We are adopted into his family. And, man, we can feel indebted to Jesus, can't we? And I think we, too, can look for ways in which we, we seek to rebalance that relationship with God. God, you've done all this for me. I, oh, I really ought to try and try and make it up to you. We, we want to know what God requires of us in light of everything that he's done. And so we might read God's words in the Bible and and try as hard as we can to live obediently because it, it is the least that I can do. God, it's the least I can do. I mean, you died on the cross for me. I, I at least owe you my efforts to, to be kind or be generous or not lie. Um and maybe if I can live rightly enough, long enough, it'll, it'll start to rebalance it just a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe I won't get it all the way, I don't know, but we can start to make up that gap. And the Bible does give us direction on how to live as disciples of Jesus, but it's not about evening the score. It's not about living up to all that he has done for us. And I think the heartbreaking reality is that that there are many Christians in our world, people who truly have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who feel like they owe it to God, and that drives how they live, that drives the decisions that they make. You and I are never going to even the score with God. We will never even the score. Our deeds will never bring the scales back into balance And so, if your understanding of God today is that He wants you to live in such a way as to repay Him for what He's done for you, like, I I gave my life for you, you owe me this, please listen to me closely. God does not require you to balance the scales, He doesn't expect you to balance the scales, He doesn't want you to try to balance the scales. So, what does He require? What does he require of us? And I think Micah would say, glad you asked. Glad you asked. The verdict is given in verse eight. Look at Micah 6, eight. Easily the the most well-known verse in the book of Micah. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. what God desires from us, what he longs for is relationship. He, he deeply desires that we would love him in response to the incredible grace and mercy that he has shown in our lives. And that uh, that middle phrase there in the last part, do justice, love, kindness, that, that love kindness, it jumped out at me in a way that, that it never has before as, as I was uh, preparing for today's sermon. Um, other translations would say, uh, uh, be faithful. Um, NIV, the, the translation I learned it in, uh, love mercy, uh, love faithfulness. Those are, all, those are all translations. The Hebrew words there, there's two of them. The Hebrew words are ahaba hesed. Ahaba hesed. So ahaba speaks of, of an intense desire for someone or something. So when we say today, "I love you, Mom," that's ahaba. Our, our mothers stir up that, that intense feeling, that, that desire within us. We we love them. That's ahaba. Hesed, the second word, it is a powerful word that is most often translated in a way that it, it describes God Himself. It describes God himself. It's usually translated as steadfast love, hesed, steadfast love. So so when you read through Psalms, for example, God's steadfast love, his hesed, is what's quite often in focus. So so just some of the phrases from the book of Psalms says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I've trusted in your hesed. Uh, your hesed is before my eyes. I will rejoice in your hesed. How precious is your hesed. Your hesed is better than life. Your hesed endures forever. Steadfast love is what is in focus there. God's steadfast love. So, so what does God desire from us? That we would ahaba hesed. That we would love steadfast love. And who's the source of steadfast love? It's God himself. Hesed is a word that describes God. That we would love God himself. And you know those times when you've done something for someone solely out of your love for them. And you sacrificed, you served, because you loved them. Maybe the scales weren't balanced anymore, but it didn't matter because you loved that other person and that's why you did what you did. How would you feel if the other person became obsessed with trying to make things even again? Maybe you've experienced that in a time. How would you feel if rather than a deeper relationship, your loving action led to the other person pulling away due to feelings of shame or or feelings of inadequacy? break your heart, wouldn't it? I did something because I loved you. I, I don't want that to come between us. I don't want it to create this awkwardness between us. I think, I, I think it's similar to what happens when we, when we think that the scales between us and God need to be rebalanced. God doesn't want the scales rebalanced. He wants us to ahabah hesed. He wants us to love him. That's, that's what he desires. Now, now, Jesus said that we will love him by keeping his commands. He says that in John's gospel. Whoever loves his commands and keeps them loves him. But it's not about balancing the scales. We're not keeping commands to, to try to make it up to God. It's about living out our love for God. And that could lead, you know, two people could do the same thing, but for completely different motives, Right. One person could do one thing solely out of trying to repay God. Another person could do the exact same thing. But it's because they love God and they want to display their love for him in that way. I mean, I think there's a reason Jesus said the entire Old Testament law can be summed up in two commands. Love God and love neighbor. And I think the doing justice, I think that's loving neighbor, doing justice. The Ahaba has said, I think that's loving God and then walking humbly with God is that's the attitude that nourishes both of those things doing justice toward others and loving God and how we live so so what does the Lord require of you what does he require of me it's not rebalancing the scales it's not evening the score we can be free from that what God desires is relationship with us, permeated by love. Now, if we think about the table this morning, you know, what we have on the table before us is an expression of God's incredible love poured out for us. No question about that. If, if, I think if God were recounting his grace and mercy to us, like he was doing here in chapter 6 with, with uh, the people of Israel— I think God might just point at the table and say, remember my body broken? Remember my blood shed? I think that's, that's what he would bring to, bring to our minds. We're never going to live up to this. No sacrifice, no combination of sacrifices that, that I make for God will ever counterbalance this. And they're not supposed to. They're not supposed to. On, on, uh, on the evening before his crucifixion, when, when Jesus instituted this meal as something which is to be observed regularly by his people until he returns, what did he say to his disciples? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Now go out and make things even. No, <laughs> that wasn't it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me in remembrance of me. It's on the front of our communion table here. It's not make things even it's remember me, remember my Hesed poured out for you. It's not about it's not about focusing on our efforts to even the score. It's not about lamenting the fact that, that we, Will only fail in trying to do that it's about it's about focusing upon it's about remembering Jesus and his hesed shown in its fullness on the cross so the elders are going to come forward and and uh, we'll we'll bring the elements to you as as we always do. Do so we eat the bread as we drink the juice together? let's do what the front of the table here says. Let's remember God's hesed, his steadfast love shown to us. And let's allow his love to fill us and ignite and fuel our love for him. And that's that's what God desires, that his love fills us and overwhelms us and then And then is this love that we have for him? So let's do that together as we come to the table this morning.